You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 2 Corinthians 10, and we'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 18. Verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understands that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of of those who are commending themselves. For when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even you, For we are not overextending ourselves, as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labours of others. But our hope is that your faith increases. Our air of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tiana, and it's great to be with you tonight. Uh, As we begin, though, first of all, a quick message to anyone listening on our podcast. (laughs) We always record our podcasts on Sunday evenings. And last week, you would have heard in the podcast, halfway through, we were worried the place was going to burn down. Uh, It didn't. We're here. And so it's all fine. We had an electrician look at it during the week. It's all good. (laughs) But let's carry on with uh, tonight's sermon, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to start by asking, how do you measure the spiritual? How do you measure your own spiritual health, the success perhaps of your church or your ministry? It's an interesting question, and it's one that we've actually considered quite a bit here at City on a Hill. Uh, Our church has been around for just over 15 years, and by God's grace, we've enjoyed a lot of numerical growth in that time. Uh, There are thousands of people coming to our churches across the place. Uh, We've been able to plant nine churches around Australia. 
And perhaps, though, because of that growth, we've actually had to ask ourselves, is this good growth? We may have numerical growth, but do we have deep spiritual growth? You see, you can measure a church by how many people come along or how many churches you plant, but that's not necessarily a reliable measure. It might be that people are coming, but they're not staying because they're not being provided with the spiritual care that they need. Or it might be that you're planning churches, but that might actually be more about your own ambition, about our empire rather than God's kingdom. So, so how do you actually measure the spiritual? And that's really the kind of background that we have to this part of 2 Corinthians. We're up to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and the letter takes a quick, uh, distinct turn at this point. Uh, the Apostle Paul so far has been encouraging to the church, but also quite strong. There's been some big issues in the church, but they're improving. They're responding in repentance. They're seeking to do the right thing. And so Paul is encouraged and encouraging to them. He says a couple of weeks ago, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. But now in these last few chapters from chapter 10 through to the 12, basically, there's this pivot and Paul becomes very stern because he's actually dealing with some significant ongoing issues in the church. Specifically, what seems to have happened is there's some uh, teachers who've come into the church, intruders he sees them, and they're questioning Paul's authority and leading the people astray with false doctrine. Now, Paul actually describes these guys in chapter 11 as the super apostles. It's a fantastic name. Sounds like the next Marvel movie. Uh, but he's actually using the term sarcastically because Paul sees these guys as frauds. You might remember that when Jesus set up the church, he established apostles to lead that church. Uh, they were witnesses to Christ's life and work. They were appointed to proclaim his name and, they were, and God blessed their work, manifested his power through them. Uh, and Paul was one of these guys appointed after his conversion. And they were the acknowledged leaders of the church but now these other guys have come along who claim to be just as powerful or even better, more important than the apostles. And the guys of Corinth have just kind of fallen for them. They're, they're wowed by these guys. Now, it must be said that these guys did appear very impressive. This was the age of the great orators, amazing speakers skilled in the techniques of what we call rhetoric. They were the celebrities, glamorous well-groomed, they had nice clothes, they were immortalised in statues, treated like rock stars or sports legends, and they could demand massive fees for their appearances and their speaking engagements. And these super apostles were in this tradition, but they brought a religious twist to it. They could boast of incredible uh, spiritual experiences and visions and miraculous gifts and special access to God, and then they proclaim this dynamic, exciting message, a feel-good message of power and opportunity and comfort and glory. And so the Corinthians fell for this. They gravitated to these guys. And at the same time as they're doing all of this stuff, these guys are also bad-mouthing Paul and saying that he doesn't measure up to their level. Now, we don't have a direct quote of what they said, but we can deduce it from the text First of all, they questioned his credentials. When these guys would go around, they would carry with them testimonials from, from other speakers. But Paul didn't have this. He didn't carry around his CV with them. Then they questioned Paul's message. He was always constantly on about doom and gloom and suffering, and they presented a message of a triumphant Christian life. Certainly they would have mocked his style. 
They loved flowery rhetoric, but Paul was a bit methodical, a bit plodding, a bit dull. I mean, famously, when he's in Troas, there's this guy called Eutychus who actually falls asleep while he's listening to Paul's preaching and falls out a window. No doubt they mocked his appearance as well. They looked glamorous, but he looked plain. We have this first century description of Paul. He was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty. He was balding. His legs were a little crooked. His knees were far apart. This is my favourite bit. He was of good state of body. So he was a bit chubby. <laughs> I'm really seeking to honour Paul and, and imitate him in my own life. He, he had large eyes. His eyebrows met like John Howard and his nose was somewhat long. And so he was not exactly an Adonis. He was an easy target then. And in fact, even the things that we would see as being to Paul's credit, they turned against him. Uh, he could be quite strong in his letters, but he tended to be more gentle and careful in person. And so they argued that he was just a keyboard warrior. 10 verse 10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. And in fact, they even derided his refusal to take money from the Corinthians. Uh, Paul had every right to ask for money, but he had chosen not to because he didn't want to put an obstacle in the way of them receiving the gospel, he explains. But now this generosity counted against him. You see, uh, when all of these other speakers were demanding fees, it was a sign, they thought, of their value. You pay for what you get. And so if they didn't have to pay for Paul, it suggested that his message wasn't worth anything. Ultimately, they see that... Uh, he wasn't enough, that he didn't measure up. In their minds, they saw that his ministry was just of the flesh, verse 3. As one writer explains, they saw that the power of the Spirit should be seen in the power of the person. Paul was weak, he was unimpressive, so they figured that the Spirit wasn't much, wasn't much in evidence in him and so the Spirit wouldn't work through him. It wasn't going to be effective. Certainly not as much as them. I mean, the Spirit had to be working through them because they had all of this power. They had these visions, this influence, this charisma. And so this passage is really about how we measure the spiritual. How do we measure the success of vitality of a leader, of a church, of a ministry? And Paul's response is actually going to help us think through this. He gives how he defines these things, how he measures it. And the first thing he says is he offers the measure of Christ-likeness. It's a very broad concept. We could pick out any number of things. I mean, Jesus was humble, he was kind, he was prayerful. What I want to pick out here is meekness. You notice in verse 1, he entreats them, he appeals to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In this world of big noting and self-promotion, Paul is all about meekness. Uh, he wants to be, like Jesus, humble and adopt this posture of meekness. And I think meekness is one of the hardest things to have. It's a strange sort of quality, one that we could easily misunderstand. We, we often think meek means being weak, that it's sort of just being a walkover, allowing yourself to be pushed around. But in the Bible, the people who are described as meek are also powerful. You think of Moses, or you think most particularly of Jesus. Here is someone who allowed the soldiers to spit on him, but always had this strength within him. And that actually points to what meekness is. One definition is that meekness is strength under control. 
It's knowing what you have, but choosing to use it only when you believe it's the right thing to do. To illustrate, uh, the writer John Dixon tells the story of Joe Lewis, uh, a boxer, a black boxer from about 100 years ago. Uh, one day he's riding on a bus in the States and he starts being uh, racially abused by some white guys on this bus and he, he doesn't respond. He just lets it happen and the abuse gets worse and worse until finally he gets to his stop and he gets up off his chair and just as he's leaving, he pulls out a little business card and gives it to these white guys and he says, it just says, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> and you imagine in that moment, they realise how close they have come to death. <laughs> that is meekness. That's knowing the strength that you have but choosing not always to use it. Also you might say that it's wisdom, strength with wisdom. William Barclay says that meekness is the quality of a man whose anger is so mastered and so controlled that he's always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. It's someone who is never angry at any personal wrong, but who is capable of righteous anger when he sees others hurt and injured and insulted. So that's the other thing. Meek doesn't mean that you never show your strength. You control it, but you are willing to show it when you need to. Think of Jesus. Yes, he allows them to spit on him, but also there are other times where he shows his strength in flipping over the tables in the temple. So it's knowing when to show that strength. And that's what we see here with Paul. It must have been incredibly hurtful for him to hear these things said about him. I mean, he planted this church. He'd led many of these people to Christ. He'd given himself to them. He saw himself as a spiritual parent. He says in chapter 7, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He, he's totally invested in them. But now he can see them just wandering away and going off to this shiny new thing. This must have been hurtful, but he responds not just out of a personal sense of injury, but out of an alarm for their spiritual health. So he recognises that they're rejecting him and in doing so they're rejecting the gospel. That's what really moves him, moves him to anger. He says, you need to sort this out, otherwise I'm going to have to punish the disobedience. But it's not just on his own behalf, it's for them. So in chapter 11 he describes these guys as false apostles, deceitful workmen, servants of Satan because they're proclaiming another Jesus, a different gospel and offering a different spirit. These are the things that concern him. It's not about himself, it's about them. So really we see in this guy the measure of Christ-likeness. He has this meekness, a strength that he controls but which he will use to defend the gospel. And that points to the second thing, the second measure, the measure of gospel confidence. Paul is sure that the gospel is worth it. He's confident that God will work through the gospel. See, there's a certain irony in some of the criticisms that are being thrown at Paul because, of course, there's some truth in them. Uh, Paul would be the first to acknowledge, for instance, that he wasn't a great speaker. In fact, in chapter 11, he says, I am unskilled in speaking. He wasn't as flamboyant or confident as the super apostles. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, he says in 1 Corinthians 2. And he knew that his message of a God who had come to earth and 
die on the cross and sacrifice himself for rebellious humanity, he knew that that sounded strange in a world that elevated the gods. We preach Christ crucified, he says, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But he also knew that this message had the power to save that it was the message of life and transformation. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and follow to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Paul had confidence in the gospel because this is the wonder of the gospel. It sounds ridiculous, but it's actually glorious. It humbles us under the face of God. We, we see his holiness and our sin. We sense his goodness and our rebellion. So it humbles us. It's hard for us to hear. We don't want this, but we hear it, and then we discover God's grace, that the wisdom of God is wiser than ours and the weakness of God is stronger than our strength. We discover our inability to save ourselves and God's absolute willingness to do it, to offer himself even at the greatest, the most infinite cost so that we could be saved. And so actually far from discrediting his message, Paul's weakness actually highlights it. As he says in chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The worse he looks, the better God looks. That's the gospel. And this gospel has true power. God works through this gospel to bring transformation. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 3 to 5. You notice that there's all of this military language. Verse 3, we're waging war. Verse 4, the, the weapons of our warfare that can destroy strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and take every thought captive. For someone reading this in the first century, their first thought would have been of the, the Roman uh, siege weapons. It was incredibly hard to uh, take a city, to conquer a city. They would have these big, strong walls, and then within the walls would be another sort of fortification, what was called a stronghold. But the Romans had devised these methods of doing it. They would kind of uh, pu uh, propel this thing up to the walls and they would pr protect the soldiers as they were attacking and then they'd get through the wall and then take the stronghold. <clears throat> Paul's now picking that up from this human conflict idea and now bringing it into a spiritual realm. Because Paul often speaks of a spiritual conflict that behind the scenes in our world there is this battle between good and evil between God and the devil, this battle for the allegiance of human hearts, human minds. See, we were made to live with God and for God. That's, that's our goal. That's our purpose. But we've resisted this. We've turned ourselves away from God. We want to be God ourselves. And then because we're apart from him, we, we want to defend ourselves against him. We, we create these fortifications to kind of block him out, these strongholds that protect our heart from his intrusions. Now, you might know some of these. You might recognise them. Perhaps you've used them yourselves. Religious defences. You know, the idea that I don't need God to save me, like I can do it myself. Or intellectual doubts, like it's, it's just not conceivable that a person could rise from the dead, like Christians say about Jesus. 
or maybe it's historical scepticism. Like it's so long ago, how can we know that any of this happened? Or perhaps it's philosophical objections. How can I trust a God and believe a God who says that he's good if there's still suffering in the world? Why doesn't he do something about it? These are the kinds of defences that we create, what you might call spiritual strongholds to keep out God, to keep God at a distance. And until they're broken down, we just won't receive Jesus. We won't trust and believe in the gospel. And then as as the church, when we come up against these defences, we might be tempted to kind of, we might reach for our own human weapons to kind of break it down. Perhaps we want to find the, the best argument that will just kind of knock something out or just convince someone on the spot. Or, or maybe when we realise that Christianity just looks a bit cringe for people, we kind of try to find a way to make it accessible. Here's this cool celebrity, they like it, so maybe you can get into it. Or if all else fails, maybe we just kind of create a distraction, a big show, and hope that we'll just uh, overwhelm someone with the, the, the grandeur of Christianity somehow. But these techniques don't really work, not in any long-lasting, substantial way. You see, a spiritual conflict requires spiritual weapons. And all of those things, those human weapons that we're using, really, they're just human, they're just material. As Paul says, it's waging war according to the flesh. The problem is spiritual, so the solution has to be spiritual as well. You see, the knowledge of God is clear for all humanity. Romans 1, Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. It's there. The problem, he says, is that we suppress the truth. It's not that we can't see it. It's obvious all around us, but we suppress it. We push it down. We ignore it because we don't want it. We don't like the truth. That's why we put up the the fortifications around us. They have to be broken down first. And Paul says he has the weapons that can do this. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What he's talking about here is the gospel, the message of salvation through Jesus. These things can break down our resistance. The truth of Jesus can actually start to transform us from the inside out, change the way we think. As D.A. Carson puts it, it cuts off the fountainhead of sin in our lives. We start to think differently, not just about being our own God, but we start to submit and recognise the true God. And then as we come to faith, we start to see that there is eternal life with God. There is power as he transforms our hearts and our lives and we can live a life of purpose. We can be transformed as God starts to work within us. But it starts with the mind as God starts to get in there. Warren Wiersbe says, once the walls and the mind have been torn down, the door to the heart can be opened. That's where the gospel goes first. Heard a great story the other day about a guy called Josh Timonen. Uh, He was a right-hand man of Richard Dawkins. You might remember Richard Dawkins 20 years ago. He was big as an atheist. And this guy worked with him. In fact, one of Dawkins' books is dedicated to this guy, Josh. 
Well, after, in the last few years, this guy uh, became a father and he and his wife wanted to find a community that they could connect with, with their young girl. They start going to a church, risky move. Um, and then they start enjoying this community and they want to ask more questions and they, he starts reading the New Testament. He reads The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And eventually he says, I got to the point where I realised it was true. Like I, I just couldn't escape the fact that it was true. But then he also says, I realised that God was asking me to do something, that this was personal. I had to respond to Jesus. That's the gospel working from his mind to his heart. There wasn't some showy display. It wasn't a smoke machine. It wasn't this killer argument. It was the gospel and the spirit working through that. These are the weapons that win in a spiritual battle. This is what Paul has and that's what he's committed to. He says in chapter 4, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He, he just wants to preach the gospel and leave God to do his thing. And so this is his riposte to the super apostles. They, they see him as just earthly. He's ineffective, he's weak. But he says, no, 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 it's actually the reverse. Your techniques are the ones that are ineffective. In fact, these other techniques, these other weapons are part of the problem. See, within us is this instinct to we want to be elevated. We want to be God. We want to look and feel important and impressive. We want to be self-sufficient. And the weapons of the world, the weapons that are so often used in churches, actually just accentuate that. They make it an even bigger problem. About 15 years ago, I was working as a graphic designer for a Christian uh, company and uh, we went along to a big Christian conference. Uh, we were one of the sponsors and so we went along. And there was a whole bunch of speakers and there was this one speaker that everyone was really excited about. Like he was the headline speaker. Everyone wanted to listen to this guy. Uh, and I remember going in to hear him, him speak and it, it was incredible. Like he had this grandiose title that made him seem really, really important. Uh, he had this dramatic style. He had this keyboardist up on stage to sort of play along at the right moments. Me and Dan have been talking about how we can do that. Um, it just kind of adds some drama to the whole thing. And he was an incredible speaker. I've got to say, he was a remarkable speaker. I remember there's this one moment in his talk where he had everyone just up off the, their seats yelling and praising and this is incredible. And then like 10 seconds later, everyone was completely silent and you could hear a pin drop. Like he, he had the crowd in the palm of his hand. There's only one problem. He never told the gospel. And in fact, by the end of the night, he was the hero, not Jesus. And the whole message was about how we can be heroes in our own life. It just built our self-sufficiency. It just built up everything that made us feel amazing. The gospel tears that down and then builds us up in Christ. So his weapons were just of the flesh. 
true weapons get to our hearts. So how do we assess the spiritual? How do we assess a preacher or their ministries? Do they have true gospel confidence? Are they confident that the message of Jesus is enough, that God can work through that? Is Jesus the hero or are they? And I think that's actually what Paul is talking about when he says that we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ in verse 5. You've probably heard this verse. Normally it's been applied to us in a kind of a moralistic way. You need to grab anything that's not right. So maybe you have a greedy thought or a lustful thought. You've got to take that thought captive and make sure that you don't follow on with that. That's a good thing to do. But I don't think that's actually what's saying what it's saying here. Uh, reading through this passage and studying it over the last couple of weeks, I've realised that in this context what he's saying is you've got to make sure that every thought, every, every uh, approach is captive to the gospel. So you've got to assess all of your methods and make sure that it's along the lines of the gospel. Does it reveal the ethics of the gospel? Does it show the beauty of Jesus? When you're preaching, does, it, does Jesus look bigger or does the preacher look bigger? Does the message reveal a confidence in the gospel? That's why I love Paul. He has this fierce and beautiful commitment to the gospel. He wanted constantly to get out of the way so that people could see Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Jesus was always the hero when Paul was preaching. So we have these measures of Christ-likeness, the measure of gospel confidence, and thirdly, the measure of faithfulness. Paul measures his ministry by if he is faithful to the call of God on his life. He assesses everything by how God views it rather than anyone else. That's really what sets him apart, one of the things that sets him apart from these super apostles. See, see, they constantly live their life by comparison, constantly looking at other people and seeing whether or not they matched up to them or were better and more superior to them. They were looking to commend themselves, to take glory for any achievements that they did. But Paul says this is all flawed because, he says in verse 12, they commend themselves only when they're measured by one another. See, these guys were just in this mutual admiration society. They would, they would do a talk. One of their buddies would commend them and, and give them a testimonial. But it was all just buzz. It was just hype. There wasn't any substance to it. Paul says they're without understanding when they compare themselves like this because it's not a true or proper measure. As Tom Wright says, you, you can have a, a few people who are short and they can stand next to each other and think, oh, yeah, I'm pretty tall, but then a tall person comes into the room and that gives them true perspective. If you're not sure, I'll walk past you later. What Paul does is he compares himself by God and by the standards that God has given him. So you'll notice in this passage that the Paul sounds like he's boasting quite a bit, verse 8, verse 13, 15, 17. We might feel uncomfortable about that. 
But there's something very different in Paul's boasting. These super apostles boasted about their achievements. But Paul says in verse 13, we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. He's saying, I will boast only in what God has called me to do and in what God has enabled me to do. Verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Everything that he has is from God, and so he speaks only about the stuff that God has enabled him to do. As Scott Haifman says, to boast in the Lord is to exult in what the grace of God has accomplished in one's life. This is how Paul measures his work. He measures it against what God has called him to do. He assesses it. Am I being faithful to what God has asked me to do? see, Paul had been given a task by God. When he was converted, he was told that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles and he was sent out to be a pioneer to preach the gospel in places that had never heard of Jesus. So that's what Paul did. He went all over the world, that ancient world, to places like Philippi and Ephesus, to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens, to Corinth. He planted something like 14 churches Constantly taking the gospel to places that no one had ever taken it to. That's what he says here. I was, we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We were the first to get there. You see him kind of staking it out, going further and further. And even as he did this, even as he was thankful for what he'd been able to do, he's constantly looking for the next thing to the next horizon. Verse 15, our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. There's this kind of gospel restlessness in Paul. It's ambition to go further and further. He wanted to get to Spain. He wanted to get to Rome, the heart of the empire. And he says in a letter to the Romans, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ where Christ has already been named, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. He, he wants to be the first to, to proclaim the gospel everywhere. That's what God had called him to. So that's how he measured his ministry. Am I being faithful to God's call on my life. That, that's what he was constantly asking himself. And so it's worth asking ourselves too, are we being faithful to our calling? Now that might feel like an overwhelming question, like how do you even know what your calling is? How do I discern this? But perhaps we can make it a little bit more tangible. So first of all, we're all called to be disciples of Jesus, to be a faithful follower of our King. So so are we being faithful in that way? Are we following him? Are we seeking him? Are we putting sin to death? Is the fruit of the Spirit growing within us? Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So are we walking worthy of Christ? That's our first call. And then we're called to be faithful in our relationships to our family, to our friends. If you're married, called to be faithful in your marriage. So are we being faithful to our call? 
Would the people in our life testify that, that we are showing them what Jesus is like? And then we're called to our work, all of us. See, sometimes we imagine that the only people called are those who are called in ministry. But, of course, that's not true. We're all called in different places. We need Christians in classrooms, in surgeries, in building sites, in offices, looking after kids at home. We, we need people in all of these places. We need God's people to reveal God's character in those places, to be a city on a hill wherever you are, to be the light of the world, to work with God, with God in the things that he gives you to do. So are you being faithful to that call? Are you working well? And then we're called to be the church. See, this call is not just for, for me, it's not just for you, it's for us together. We are called to be a church. We specifically are called to be City on a Hill West. We're called to be this church here, to love the West, to care for those around us, to have an impact, to be a City on a Hill here. So are we being faithful to that? We have an incredible opportunity. As we get this building and we start to make this place truly our home, we have an amazing opportunity. We have two schools within 500 metres. We have a footy club a kilometre down the road, the, the biggest cultural centre of the western suburbs. We have a massive hospital being built just around the corner. We have Victoria University. We have suburbs around here where we have the richest people in our area and the poorest, almost right next to each other. What kind of impact could we have here? What is God calling us to do here? How can we be a place where this becomes a hub of life and love, where there's mums who come in and they come to a, a childcare group or, or there's people who come in and they're, they're learning English for the first time? Or there's a big sporting event on and we open the doors and people are enjoying our hospitality. Or there's Christianity Explored courses happening where people are encountering and discovering who Jesus is. What are we being called to that we can do here? Let's be praying about that. But we won't be all of these things, won't be any of these things unless we contribute ourselves, unless we bring ourselves to this work. Paul says in Corinthians that uh, we are all given gifts of the Spirit, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so the gifts that God has given you are here for all of us. You are God's gift to this church. And we won't be all that we could be unless you bring that. So let's be this church together. Let's all fulfil our calling as individuals so that we can fulfil it together. But as you do this, please be sure to embrace your calling and to not just assess yourself by someone else's calling. I remember hearing about this guy who uh, was a great evangelist and he would expect, expect to bring someone to faith every day. <laughs> So he'd be like in a, a queue lining up for the aeroplane. He'd start evangelising. He expected that this person would just like give their lives to Jesus on the spot. And he would see this happen again and again and again. And when I heard about this, when I compare myself to him, I just feel absolutely hopeless. 
Like, I don't do that. I mean, if we're lucky, we might see one person come to faith through our direct ministry perhaps. And so if you compare yourself to someone else, you're constantly going to feel inadequate. You just can't measure up. And sometimes I feel about myself in this kind of way. You know, uh, nine years ago we planted this church, but I don't really feel like a church planter. Most church planters have these crazy stories of like scrabbling together where they had nothing and it was like two people and they had no venue or anything like that. We started with like 100 people coming across from City on a Hill, Melbourne. So I don't have those stories. I don't feel like I'm a great evangelist. I love telling the gospel. When the conversation is there, I love it, but I don't, I'm not good at starting those conversations. I'm not a great pioneer. I haven't planted a whole stack of churches all over the place like other people that I know. And so when I look at other people, I feel inadequate when I compare myself to them. But, of course, I kind of should be because those are the things that God has called someone else to do. And God has equipped those people so that they can fulfill that task. And then God has equipped me to do other things. See, I think I've been called to teach, to just open up the scriptures and preach every week, then to walk alongside people with it. I, I love finding Jesus in every passage of the Bible and trying to help us hear the gospel in a new way every week. I think God's given me some talents in that. And so that's what I'm called to do. And so that's what I need to fulfill. God is assessing me according to whether I am faithful to that. So what is he calling you to? Not what he's calling someone else to, but what is he calling you to? What are the desires he's placed on your heart? What are the gifts he's equipped you with? What are the opportunities that he's opening up for you? Be faithful in that. And then if we're doing that, then finally we can see the measure, the final measure, the measure of God's uh, commendation, not condemnation, <laughs> God's commendation. Verse 18, Paul says, It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. See, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you view yourself, how other people see you. It really just matters how God sees you. One of the most challenging but most beautiful passages in all of Scripture is the parable where Jesus says in Matthew 25, he imagines a master speaking to his servant and he's describing God speaking to us. And at the end of their life, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the ultimate commendation. That's the ultimate measure of our lives, whether God sees us as faithful. How do we be sure of that? Well, if he's changing us to be more like Christ, if we're confident in the gospel and we're declaring that and living that out, and if we're faithful to what he has called us specifically to do, then we can be confident that we will receive this commendation. Comparing ourselves to others is an easy trap for us to fall into. We do it as individuals. We look at the people around us and see who's worshipping the most in church. We see whose kids are the naughtiest. Sweet, my kids aren't the worst. What a relief. 
we listen to people's prayer points at gospel community and we think, okay, at least I'm not as bad as them. We do it as churches. We, we compare ourselves. How many people are coming to our church? How many conversions are we seeing? We compare our preachers, what kind of, uh, how good they are as speakers, all of these things. We compare constantly. But it's dangerous and it's unhelpful. As Gary Miller says, when we compare ourselves to others, we're either built up in our self-righteousness and our pride or we're crushed in self-pity and we feel inadequate. Really what we need to do is just compare ourselves to God. When we compare ourselves to God, we are overwhelmed, we're crushed in humility because he's perfect, he's holy, he's powerful, we're nothing. But even though we are nothing, we are something to him, something so important that he would die for us and then give us an opportunity to work with him. He gives us a calling and he works through us. That's the opportunity that we have. And he wants us to measure our lives according to our faithfulness to that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful example of Paul. We thank you that even when hurtful things were being said about him, he didn't respond in great anger. He didn't just defend himself. He fought for people so that they would remember the gospel. Lord, uh, help us to not compare ourselves with others. That's just going to lead to pride or self-pity. Help us to compare ourselves to you, to find humility, and then to find value, to find our identity, that you, the creator of all things, the saviour who forgives our sins, you value us. and You have given us a chance to become like you. You've given us work to do in your kingdom. You've given us the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Lord, help us to be faithful to your call on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.